Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Piri Ackerman-Barger, who is the Associate Dean for Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, and Clinical Professor and Director of Faculty Development for Education and Teaching at UC Davis Betty Irene School of Nursing about microaggression. We also want to remind our listeners that you can find our newly redesigned show notes on our Patreon page by becoming a patron and supporter of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to our website website www.womancenteredhealth.com and click the support us slash patreon tab also if you missed our big news nurses can now earn ce for listening to the woman centered health podcast just check out mycehq.com or download the cehq app to learn more Hi, Perry. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. The first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners some of the details about your background. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Nicole. So a little bit about my background. I have been a registered nurse for a little over 25 years. And in the course of my nursing practice, I became very interested in the social determinants of health and health equity. So that has led me down the road of looking at both our the way that we practice clinically in hospitals and public health, that sort of thing, and also the way that we provide education around social determinants of health and health equity. I also do a lot of work looking at the diversity of our health professions workforce. Thank you for that. And the other question that we always ask, which is our favorite question, is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? Hmm. Wow, what a profound question. For me, it is personal from many directions. One is I am mixed race. My mom is white and my dad is black. And they they broke up when I was pretty young. And what that meant for me is that I was often going back and forth between my white family and my black family and was having very different experiences when I was with my mom versus uh, being with my dad. I think that they call that now code switching. But it made me very aware of our basically our racialized country. So this is something that I've been thinking about since I was very young. In fact, I found a paper that I wrote in my first year of college about basically what we would call health disparities. So clearly, I've been interested in this for a long time. But another pivotal moment in my life was when I was in nursing school. And we were talking about the risk factors for things like cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes. And one of the things that came up was race ethnicity. You know, if you you have higher risk, if you're Black or African American, Hispanic, Latino, Native American. And I, I couldn't quite get why that would be. And so when I raised my hand, the teacher said that it was a genetic predisposition. 
And that didn't make sense to me even back then. Like the flip side of that argument is that somehow there's something wrong with black and brown bodies. They're biologically inferior or more prone to disease. And if you if you take that back a step farther and start thinking about, well, let's look at these groups of people. If we're going to talk about black people, there is a giant continent it's called Africa, where there's a lot of black people that do not have the health outcomes that African American people have. If you go back historically and look at Native American people, you can see almost a dividing mark when there began to be these consistent health outcomes for Native Americans, when lands were taken away, when families were separated and people were put in institutions, things like that, there was a decline. So that suggests that there's something socially and politically that is happening with health. And that has made me very curious about how do we make our policies and procedures? What are the the underlying philosophies of how we have structured our country and our institutions, particularly my interest is education and healthcare. Thank you for sharing that with us. This is always my favorite question of the entire podcast. <laughs> okay, so like we said, today we're going to talk about microaggression. So let's jump right in. Let's start out broadly. Can you share with us and our listeners what is a microaggression? Absolutely. So microaggressions are denigrating messages that are communicated to groups of people based on some aspect of their identity. The first time we saw the term microaggression in the literature was by a psychiatrist named Dr. Chester Pierce. And he used the term microaggression to explain an experience, to describe an experience that African American people were having. Since that time, there have been multiple scholars that have worked on this concept. One of them is Daryl Dwing Sue, another one is Kevin Nadal, and have expanded this to not just African American, but there are many different identities that experience microaggressions. And microaggressions from the perspective of the source, they can be conscious or unconscious. They can be verbal or nonverbal messages that are given. And so the thing about a microaggression is that they're subtle and sometimes the the source of the microaggression doesn't understand or notice that they are the source of a microaggression that's often from unconscious bias or you know maybe from a little bit of ignorance around the experiences of other people but they also can be purposefully done in the form of a joke or you might call it ribbing somebody you know so for the recipient these are things that accumulate over time. Like you might argue that, yes, everybody probably experiences a microaggression at some point in their life, but there are folks that experience this every day. And the cumulative effect of microaggressions can create mental health outcomes, uh, such as depression and anxiety. We know that depression and anxiety are also associated with uh, suicide ideation, and in some cases, suicide success. And then there are also health outcomes of microaggressions that are really in the form of something called allostatic load, which is basically the the weathering or the wear and tear of the body over time in relationship to stress and is associated with things like, guess what, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, a lot of those things that create higher risk factors for certain groups of people. 
Can you tell us how microaggressions are similar or different from stereotypes or racism? So all of these terms are very connected to each other, but each one has its own nuance. So stereotyping is something that your that the brain does for cognitive efficiency, right? Your brain is trying to deal with a lot of information at one time. And so it tends to create patterns or schema, as it has been called, And sometimes these come in the form of negative stereotypes about groups of people that can have a basis in racism or assumptions about groups of people. So stereotyping can be a very negative thing that when you think about a black person, you're associating that with crime and violence. That's a stereotype. That's an an unfair and inaccurate stereotype. When people think about women, they think, oh, women are not as good at math, right? So those are all stereotypes that can be in your mind, either consciously or unconsciously. The microaggression comes when that is expressed in your outward voice or in your behavior or in your nonverbals, right? And as you can tell, that can be sometimes something that is consciously done or unconsciously done. Now, the term discrimination would be the the next step in microaggressions. Like microaggressions set the stage for discrimination, but there are some technical aspects of discrimination. Like when you're talking about this in terms of the law, there has to be something called intent. You have to prove intent that you have meant to do this thing. And it's usually associated with the taking away of a resource or a right or an opportunity or something like that. And so microaggressions don't fall into that category. They they are rude, they are mean, they're denigrating, but it, they're so subtle that somebody can say, well, the other person didn't really mean it that way. Or, you know, nothing really happened. Like, yeah, that was unfortunate and, you know, not very nice, but there wasn't really a true consequence. Of course, we would argue that there is a consequence, particularly like in my line of work where we're talking about students, when students are trying to deal with what did that mean? Does the teacher not like me or do my peers not respect me? That takes energy away from the learning process. So there is something that's happening. There are consequences, but they're not necessarily outward or measurable. So it makes it really hard to do something about a microaggression as opposed to discrimination where you can say this was taken away from me because of this aspect of my identity. So then can you share with our listeners what are some quote-unquote common microaggressions that you see in healthcare? Maybe as a more concrete example of them. Yeah, there are multiple types of microaggressions that you can see in the healthcare setting. If you're talking about provider to patient interactions, think about the patient who is living with obesity. And every time they come in to see their provider, they get a lecture on, you need to lose weight. And all you need to do is diet and exercise. That is judgy in that the person, you're assuming that the person is not mindful of their health and are are not doing those things or that they don't know that those are things that have been associated with weight loss. What the provider is missing is that obesity is is far more complicated than decisions around what people are eating and whether or not they're exercising. 
do folks have access to healthy foods? Do they have access to a gym or a place that's safe to walk around? Do they have time in the day? There are families that are working two jobs to make ends meet. Where do you fit in physical exercise when you're prioritizing putting food on the table for your kids? So there are multiple things that weigh into that. And sometimes providers will even tell patients, I I can't do anything for you until you lose weight. And it's like, really, you can't do anything for somebody until they lose weight? You can't prescribe a medication? Or what would you do for somebody that was presenting with the same issue that did not have obesity or overweight? The assumption that certain groups of people are drug-seeking is a really common one. This is a lot of times providers assume that if a person of color is stating that they have pain, that they're actually trying to game the system and get drugs. So you'll see that for populations of color, they're often very undertreated for pain issues. Uh, And this includes with children as well. There have been some studies about children coming into the emergency room with abdominal pain or appendicitis pain. And black and brown children are far undertreated for pain compared to white children. Why is that? So you can start to argue, depending on the severity of it, that that could be discrimination. But when it is the implication, it is the insult of you must be, that would probably fall into the category of a microaggression. And the impact of that, like if you're going to come into the healthcare system and know that your provider or someone along the way is going to microaggress you, guess what? You're not going to be all that excited about going to the clinic and dealing with that. So there are often circumstances where people put off coming into the healthcare system until they're quite ill, until they're like, yeah, I think I'm sick enough that I'm willing to deal with whatever they're going to throw at me, whether it's a microaggression or discrimination. My health issue at this moment outweighs the pain that that will cause. I actually, just before our recording, had a meeting with some people and one of them was a medical student who talked about his pediatrician calling him fat when he was a kid. And now he still, you know, even though he's in healthcare, doesn't have a primary care physician because that was so harmful to him as a, as a kid. Yeah. So that was a, that's a great example, Stephanie, that it seemingly in the moment, like no big deal, there wasn't any direct harm in that moment. But the impact of that over a lifetime is significant that this individual, because of that interaction, does not trust anybody in the healthcare system. And so he may have had many visits with folks that were caring and kind and compassionate, but what stuck out in his mind was this one healthcare provider that basically derailed his relationship with the healthcare system because of that statement. So in that sense, microaggressions can be very harmful. So you kind of answered our next question, but do you have anything else to say about the impacts of microaggressions in the healthcare setting. Yeah, I would say that one of the big impacts of microaggressions in healthcare setting is that they contribute to a lack of trust in the healthcare system. And so they're the everyday microaggressions that people experience while they're, you know, in the process of trying to receive healthcare. And then you couple that 
with the historic medical atrocities that have happened in our country against specific groups of people. There's the Tuskegee experiments where groups of people went untreated for syphilis. They thought that they were being treated, but they were not getting the medication that they thought that they were getting. So if you take that historical perspective with the current experiences that people have, there is this profound lack of trust for the healthcare system. And so that has very real consequences. If people don't trust us with vaccine information, guess what? They're not going to want to come in and get the new vaccine for COVID-19 because they've experienced microaggressions. There's a history of it. And I wouldn't call that an irrational distrust. That is actually very rational to wonder whether the healthcare system really cares about me as an individual and about the identity group that I belong to. So before we get into this next question, I want to lay a little groundwork, maybe go in the weeds a little bit here. So obviously, you know, in a few of our recent podcasts, we have talked a, a pretty decent amount about from the provider to patient perspective. And I think this is also one of those situations where we also need to acknowledge that this happens between peers you know, colleague to colleague, this could happen, and that this could also happen from patient to provider, this microaggression. So I'm wondering, again, before we get into this next question, is could you maybe give us some examples or what you have seen between colleagues or from patient to provider? Yeah, we have focused quite a bit on provider to patient, but it is important to know that these things are multi-directional. So for providers of color or for providers that identify with a group that is underrepresented, underserved, marginalized, patients can be the source of microaggressions to the provider like not believing that they are actually the doctor or the nurse or being mistaken constantly for the dietary staff or housekeeping or those sorts of things. There are also the the gender issues. A lot of female physicians, if they walk in with their male resident, instantly it is the male resident that is considered the attending or the expert, you know, those sorts of things. So that can be very difficult. And then there are certainly the peer-to-peer things that happen as well, you know, whether they are the jokes that happen, whether it is having people not listen to your opinion as being as weighty or as important as other people. The area that I focused on the most is with students. So I've looked at the peer-to-peer relationship with students and students of color have told me that when they're working in small groups, that there will be times that they say something, that they contribute something. And it's just amazing how many times I've heard this story from different people. They say something and their group members just stare at them and don't respond. And so then a white student will come in and rephrase and say the exact same thing. And everybody's like, oh, that's a great idea or that was a really good insight. And so that is a form of a microaggression that people can't what does it understand or feel like this individual has something worthy to contribute to the conversation? So how this can play out in a a clinical setting is that a person of color makes a suggestion or an observation about what needs to happen with healthcare or the next process, and people don't 
listen or value their opinion. And that then sets the stage for things that fall more into the category of discrimination, like not getting the promotion. If if their voices are constantly underheard and undervalued, then when it's time for somebody to get promoted to a leadership position, who's going to get that position? And so then you're actually entering into another realm that would fall under the heading of discrimination. I remember when I was a nurse, my first year out of nursing school, and I worked at a skilled nursing rehabilitation facility, and I was working, and the family didn't think I was the nurse. And so they kept saying, like, where's the nurse? I'm like, that's me. And they're like, I know I sound like a child. I have the voice of, like, a 12-year-old. And I was a brand-new nurse at that time. And they kept pressing me. They're like, no, where's the nurse? I'm like, that's still me. <laughs> so then I had to prove by way of saying, like, what I knew about their parent and what was going on and the plan of care. I had to, like, prove that I actually was the nurse and not the aide or, you know, someone else. So it was kind of this weird barrier I had to like establish my credibility with this family because they just didn't believe me that I was their nurse. (laughs) That's a great example of a microaggression that's happening based on age. And so we've talked a lot about racial microaggressions, but it's really important to note that microaggressions can happen from many aspects of one's identity. And I just want to share along the lines of your story, Nicole, when I was doing focus groups around microaggressions. It was interesting because there was a nurse in in the focus group who had the very same experience that you had, that she was constantly having to prove to people that she was a nurse, that she was smart, that she was credible. And she had some tears in her eyes as she was talking about that. And then also talking about coming back to school, to graduate school, feeling this sense of not belonging because, you know, so many people had sent this message that she doesn't seem credible. And so then somebody who was quite a bit older than most people in his cohort shared, I'm experiencing that on the other end, that people think that because I'm so much older that I couldn't possibly understand Mm. technology or that I'm not going to remember stuff and they speak loud to me. And in both of those are two ends of the spectrum of experiences of microaggressions around age. And a lot of times people really get into these stereotypes that millennials do this and boomers do that. And all of those are stereotypes that can lead to microaggressions that are very marginalizing and damaging for individuals. So thank you for that example, Nicole. Yeah, I the other one that I get a lot or I see happening a lot are like female physicians who get mistaken for a nurse and it becomes this kind of like double microaggression where a patient thinks they're not a physician because they're a woman, but then they're offended, which like then I'm offended (laughs) because, well, it's not a bad thing to be a nurse. Like I get that, you know, you should be respected in your profession, but you know, also don't disrespect another profession just because you think, it, you know, I think it's getting into that, like, I'm lesser than kind of a mentality. That is something that resonates with me quite a bit in a scenario that comes up a lot, in fact. So what is happening here is you are noting 
the complexity of microaggressions. Like we usually think that there's a, a source and a recipient, but it can actually be happening at the same time. You can simultaneously be the recipient of a microaggression and then also be projecting. And that's what makes these interactions so complicated is that there are multiple perspectives that are that are happening in that. And, you know, I've definitely had physicians feel like it was very insulting to be called a nurse. And it's like, that seems like a compliment. They thought that you were a nurse. Congratulations. You know, I'm, I'm proud that you were able to convince somebody that you rose to the level of a nurse, right? And so this is part of that that learning process. And I have had some conversations with my physician colleagues about this. And it is an ingrained and accepted sort of thing in our society. It's called value attribution, where the perspectives of physicians are more valued in our society than than nurses are. And I don't really understand because the information is all the same. It's not like there's some particularly difficult thing in understanding what a medication does or when an intervention is necessary. And I've had this happen multiple times in my nursing practice that I say it and the patients don't really listen. And the physician comes and says the exact same thing. And they're like, oh, wow, you know, my dad actually does that too. Like, you know, what do you think is happening, honey? And I'm like, this, this, and this. And he's all, well, I better go see the doctor. And then comes out, they said the same thing you did. And I'm like, well, yeah, I, yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. So can we talk now about what to sort of do when you see or receive a microaggression? You know, a lot of the times I think, we if you look at social media or the news or whatever you're like getting like oh people are so sensitive they're snowflakes but how do you how should we be talking about this so like let's say you're a clinician and you witness a microaggression between coworkers or between a coworker and a patient so what tips do you have for calling someone in so when thinking about microaggressions, I think that it's important to understand, again, the complexity of human interaction. And one of the ways to do that is to recognize that you have been in the position of being the recipient, like a lot of people can, you know, when you think about a microaggression, they think about all the times they've been the recipient of. But what people have a harder time do, doing is recognizing the times that they've been the source. And everybody has been the source at some time. And maybe they don't remember it because it was the output of their unconscious bias and they really had no idea. Or that it didn't seem like that big of a deal because that same comment would would not have been hurtful for you. And so it's important when, when you're in a situation to put yourself in the shoes of another person. And this doesn't mean that we're gonna let somebody off the hook, but we're trying to understand where they're coming from, what was the motivation. And, you know, I I know that people get really sensitive about what was the intent. And when you're figuring out the intent is, again, not to let them off the hook. But if somebody is saying something out of ignorance, that is going to take you down a different road for calling them in than if they're purposefully trying to be hurtful and trying to establish their power over. That's going to be a different set of actions or comments, right? And when it's ignorance, that's actually sometimes nice because you can do some educating. You could you could say something to the effect of, I know that you may not have intended to say X, Y, Z, but I wanted to let you know that 
this is how it felt, or this was the impact that it had on me when you said that. That's much different than saying, you're racist, or I can't believe you said a racist thing, right? There's probably very few people, very few people who could hear you're a racist and stay cognitively in that conversation. And so that's like the difference between calling somebody in and calling somebody out. And then the other thing is thinking about, is this the time and the place for it, right? Public humiliation is also a non-starter that if you're going to call somebody out on social media, what is a person going to do in terms of the learning process? That's going to be really hard. And I, I'm not saying that there's never a time when you do that, but that is, that's like the big guns. So it, that'll be a little bit hard. I, going to Joe Rogan. I'm going to say he did need to be called out because the way that he was disseminating microaggressions and racist and homophobic comments was so very public that that was the venue that that was appropriate. But if somebody at work says something or a patient says something and you go to social media, that may go in a direction that you don't want it to go, right? So it, it's um, taking a moment to think about what do you actually want in the situation? And I know that when I've been the recipient of a microaggression, I want to get back at the person. I'm angry. I want to get back at the person. But in the times when I've done that, it's not like I felt any better. It's not like the relationship improved somehow. And it's not like that person like learned something from that interaction. They probably just disengaged and they're like, oh, I'm scared to talk with black people or I'm scared to talk with this person because, you know, they're so sensitive. And then what you were saying earlier about the the snowflake or the being hypersensitive, I don't believe that there is a thing called hypersensitive. I think that people are appropriately sensitive based on the experiences that they've had. And so people that perceive that as being hypersensitive are folks that have not had that particular wounding. But most people have had some sort of wounding. And when you get to theirs, then they're the ones that are hypersensitive, right? So we're all sensitive in the ways that we're sensitive. And it doesn't mean that somebody that there's something wrong with somebody. And again, in that notion of inclusion and respect, sometimes we call it having manners or being polite. We're trying to avoid hurting other people so that we can all stay in dialogue and stay in relationship with each other. And if you realize that you have hurt somebody or caused discomfort, usually a polite and decent person would want to make that better, would want to improve that relationship so that we can all be getting along. And we're, we're short on that these days. And there are probably multiple reasons for that. Again, I think that social media can take something and just make it so huge and people can comment anonymously and not be accountable for their actions, which makes things even more difficult. I loved your discussion about sensitivity. And there are so many things I want to get at. But I think one you know, you had talked about if it's coming from a place of ignorance or unawareness, then how does your response change if it's maybe someone who is doing this intentionally? So if somebody is doing it from a place of ignorance, there is often an opportunity to kindly, gently and respectfully let people know what it is that they said and how it has impacted you. And I'll try to give you a, a vague example. There was somebody who 
was in a position of authority over me who was new to our department and was coming around to all faculty member trying to get to know them. And so this person was asking me questions about my work and about me in an attempt I knew to try to get to know me. During that time, he said, he started a sentence with no offense, but, and I would just like to say that I, I have yet to think of anything that can follow that that doesn't feel offensive, even if otherwise it would be a compliment. No offense, but what nationality are you? And as a mixed race person, I know that I'm racially ambiguous and I get asked this question all the time. Sometimes it feels like it is part of the getting to know each other portion, but the no offense but was hard. And then asking what nationality I am is hard because that implies that if you are not completely white appearing, that you're somehow not as American as everyone else. Some people would argue that that should never ask about somebody's racial identity. I personally don't agree with it. Like with that, I don't like people coming up off the street and just asking me because they're curious about me like that that's not relationship building. That's not trying to get me. That's just assuaging your curiosity. And I don't care for that. But at some point in the course of a relationship, things like that do come up. So I was irritated with this person and the person had power over me, but I had to stop for a moment and think, what is, what is the intent behind this question? And I knew that the intent was he was trying to get to know me better and he was asking me questions in a way that was not very skillful and was not very graceful and probably nobody had ever told him how to ask those sorts of questions. So we engaged in a conversation about our respective backgrounds, things like that. And at the end of the conversation, I went back and I said, you know, when you asked that question, you don't need to start with no offense, but you know, just, just ask the question. And a, a different way to ask that would be, tell me about your ancestry or what is your heritage or who are the people in your life that mean a lot to you? Those are different ways of getting at that same sort of getting to know you information in a way that's not othering. And he was very like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I've never known how to ask that question. So fast forward, maybe 10 years, I got an email from him where he said, I have thought about you a lot over the last decade that, you know, I have had trouble in the way that I've engaged with diversity, equity, inclusion, and you were very graceful and calling me in and letting, you know, helping me understand the areas that I needed to improve so that I could stay in the conversation. And that, that is a success story, right? You're calling somebody in rather than I could have said something snippy to him. And he would have been then terrified to engage authentically with someone of color. And, and so that's an example of going in the positive direction. So you also asked, what if the intent is negative and mean. And that really puts you in a, in a different sort of situation. And you got to think about the power dynamics. Are you physically safe? And are you safe in terms of your status, whether it's a student, if this is your employer, are they going to write a bad review? Like all of those things, we need to respond in the world as it is, not in the world as it should be. And it 
strains and hurts my heart to have to say that. But people really need to be realistic about their safety in these kinds of conversations and make a plan about how to address those so that they are not the ones that are getting fired or dismissed from their school or in some way harmed because of somebody else's power and their negative beliefs about individuals from that group. And let me just add one piece to that, that a lot of times people think that when a microaggression happens, that it has to be addressed right now in the moment. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes it is better not to do it in a public way. And sometimes it's best to take a little bit of time to think about how you would want to respond in a way that gets the relationship or the interaction where you want it to go, rather than coming at somebody with something that can escalate and actually make things worse for you as the recipient. So that it's hard. It's hard to pause and think through because it feels like you're letting that person get away with it. But really what you're doing is taking some time to think about what the next best steps are for moving forward. I think I want that on my on my wall, whatever that quote you just said, like we need to respond to the way that the world is, not the way it should be. <laughs> because that's really a good thing to remember is really hard, especially when I think we're academics and we kind of are constantly looking at the way things should be (laughs) and wanting to respond that way. So I really like that quote. So on the flip side, then what should you do if a coworker or a patient calls you in? Ah, this is where it gets hard. So this is where we practice with humility where we listen and we recognize that it whenever you hear something about your own behavior that it has the potential to be very painful and it's particularly painful when you have values that you want to treat people with kindness and respect that you have entered the healthcare profession because you want to be in service to others you want to help other people so the moment that that is questioned creates psychological pain for you. And we have to own that within ourselves. And again, when you hear that, it's really important to pause and listen. Oftentimes, our first response to that is, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you question my morality or my value system or who I am as an individual? And I can't say that 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 I don't have moments of, of that as well. But somebody is giving you some feedback. And generally speaking, there's often some degree of truth in there, or that the person is having an experience that you don't understand, which may have nothing to do with your intention or the way that you want to practice. But there may be something about this individual that you don't know, and you've stepped on something. And so this is an amazing opportunity for you to learn about somebody. When you go into defensive mode, you're making it all about yourself. You're the center of attention. You're the diva for a moment, right? How dare you say this thing to me? But what if you stopped for a moment and listened to the individual? What is happening for them in this moment? And a lot of times in the clinical setting, we do things that are routine for us, but are terrifying for a patient. 
and we'll ask questions that are invasive that we, we and we tend to be very direct we don't develop the relationship that we need to so that people understand where the question is coming from. And let me just give you an, a personal example of a time I was interacting with a provider and I didn't know what what was his angle. So I had an injury to my jaw and I was having uh, muscle spasms and things like that. So I was seeing a physician who was able to put some Botox into my jaw to stop the spasms. And, you know, he specialized in like cosmetic surgeries and things like that. And so as we were talking and he was doing this procedure, he just suddenly out of the blue asked, what is your, what is your race and ethnicity? And I was taken aback. I was like, what does that have to do with the kind of care that you're going to give me? Are you going to put the injection in a different place? Do you think that people of color are more prone to falling and injuring their jaw? You know, like what is, what is the thing? And I, I remember just like trying to back up and get away from him. And he could see like, she's not responding to this question in the way that I think that she was going to respond to this question. And I answered his question, but was really uncomfortable with it. And he said, oh, I, I'm just really intrigued by your the amazing structure of your face and was wanting to know a little bit more about you. But for me, it seemed like I was interpreting it in that moment as a microaggression that he was judging my condition somehow. And so that wasn't his intent. But from the experiences I've had in my life, I was interpreting it that way. And so in that moment, he could have been very defensive and how dare you, but he started to realize that there was something happening for me and he became apologetic for that. And I really appreciated that he was able to see that something was happening for me and think about what he was doing. He was able to learn about somebody else's experience and that, yeah, you didn't mean it in the way that I interpreted it, but had you not apologized, you probably would never have seen me again. You know, this conversation, Stephanie, really reminds me of a conversation we had with Stormo Brink about medical violence. And one of the many beautiful things that they had said during that interview was talking about this conversation along this line, like you as a patient or someone advocating and wanting to share with uh, a provider or someone in and they called it the gift of a difficult conversation. And I believe that what you are talking about is a gift of a difficult conversation. And they said, what makes it a gift is that this is someone who is also communicating to you that they believe in you and they believe in your ability to be better and to improve the care that you are delivering. And so as hard as it is to hear this conversation, in some ways, you know, really it's about being thankful that this person is giving you this gift, this insight, and as hard as it may be to hear, we need to be receptive of that. Well, one of the analogies that I use for that is having something in your teeth. And think about if you've seen somebody with something in their teeth, have you said something to them? And people say, yeah, there's times that I've told a person that they had something in their teeth. And I ask, was that fun? Was that like the best part of your day? And people are like, 
no, <laughs> that wasn't very fun. That was really uncomfortable, but I cared about them enough to let them know. So then the next question is, are there times that you've seen something in somebody's teeth and didn't say anything and just let them walk through the day without that? So just going back to, it is uncomfortable to tell something, tell somebody that there's something in their teeth. So when you're talking about potential microaggression or stereotype unconscious bias, that is like exponentially more difficult. So if somebody is willing to tell you that you may have said something that was hurtful, they are being very brave and courageous. They are investing in you. They are having faith in your ability to hear them and to learn and grow. And so if somebody does that for you, if somebody is willing to take that risk, that is actually a gift. And that is something that you would thank somebody for. And then it's time for you to really authentically take time to look at the possibility that what you said, you, you may have had a stereotype in your mind. You may have been unconscious bias, or there may be something about other people that you just didn't understand that that would be hurtful no matter what your intent was you have had the opportunity to learn. And that is also a gift. I mean, we can look at every interaction that we have with another human being as transformational, that we are learning more about how others think and feel and operate in the world. And that makes us become better healthcare providers. Sometimes we get into autopilot where we as healthcare providers want to treat all of our patients the same. We give them the same sort of taking your blood pressure, doing this, blah, blah, blah. You explain everything. But you may not, if you're talking to somebody who is in fifth grade, you may have a different conversation than somebody who is also a healthcare provider. Yet we never, or very seldom as healthcare providers, change our little script or our spiel to meet the needs of an individual. And so that can feel like a microaggression that you're not connecting authentically with the person that you're doing this very intimate thing with. I mean, being a healthcare provider, you are involved in the intimate space of another human being. And if you're not willing to take the time to get to know them and to get to know how different people experience the world, then you may be causing harm. You can cause harm. I love that analogy. I might use that. <laughs> with other people. But it's also a good analogy. Like if you think about if you have something stuck in your teeth, for example, and you're walking around, no one tells you you're walking around all day sort of showing people your icky teeth. I mean, you know, with microaggressions, if nobody's going to tell you when you're committing those, and then you go around offending more and more people, right? So it's not just that, you know, not only are if you don't call someone in or tell them, then that other person is unknowingly going to go on and, and harm more people. So in a way, it's kind of on us to try to be uncomfortable and let people know those things. Right. Absolutely. And I, I'm willing to share a, a personal example. I'm from California. I grew up on the California coast with a surfing community. And all my life, I've used the term dude. I use the word guys all the time. And for me, it doesn't really mean anything there. It's almost like 
empty words. It's like saying, uh, or something like that. But when I was teaching a class and, you know, here I am like talking about health equity and social justice. And I was teaching a class about social justice. And after class, a student stopped and said, Piri, I I know that you are very committed to diversity, equity, inclusion. And because of that, I wanted to point out to you how many times you use the word dude and guys, which is very gender. It's, you know, very genderizing. And honestly, it just had never occurred to me. I had never spent time thinking about the words that were coming out of my mouth and the way that they impacted people. And clearly my intention was not to genderize in the class. And that was certainly not my intent in any way, but understanding that it was having an impact on someone else was really insightful. And, you know, it wasn't my intent, but if I can change the way that I'm using language so that more students in my class can feel comfortable and engaged in the content that I'm sharing, I want to hear about that. And I was, you know, it was hard. I'm supposed to be about social justice and I'm making a mistake like this. But thank you to the individual who told me that because I was able to learn and grow. That was a gift that was given to me. And I really appreciate it. And there have been more times like that. It's always hard to hear it, but it actually feels joyful once you get to the other side of, I mean, it's really a narcissistic injury when somebody tells you that you're not living up to your ideals or that you might be causing harm. And that narcissistic injury is very much about yourself in that moment. So yes, feel the stuff that you're feeling and get to the other end where you can say, I can actually do better and make more of an impact with more people because this individual took the time to invest in me. So that's a really nice segue into our next question. So let's say somebody does call you in. How can that clinician begin to identify and work to address their problem behavior? So I would say that the the very first thing is to listen and know that the individual, they've had the courage to say something to you and to view that as a gift. And then to think about the things that you don't know. I mean, this is basically practicing humility. It's practicing cultural humility. Like, you know how you would respond to microaggressions that impact you, but do you know how other people experience microaggressions and the impact that it has on them? And if you've grown up in the United States, you have gotten a history that is focused primarily on white people. And that history is interesting, it's important, but it has excluded the experiences of African American people, Native American people, Mexican American people, to the point that we often don't understand or know things about groups of people that are different from our own. You know, to learn more about Native American people, this is not part of my history, but I've had to do quite a bit of work to seek out that information. We don't hear about the experiences of trans people very often. And I realized that for me, this was an area that I was deeply lacking in knowledge. So I had to take steps to educate myself more because that didn't come to me naturally in the education system. Does that mean that I'm not smart? Does that mean that I'm not caring? No, that means there's a gap in my knowledge that I identified and then have been proactive in trying to fill. And so we need to think about that as healthcare providers that, yeah, there's information. You have a lot of wealth of information, but you do not know everything. You do not know everything. And 
again, that can be some of the things that's lacking in our preschool, elementary, high school, community college, our health professions, education. There are things that are lacking, but that doesn't give you an excuse to continue to harm people because you feel like you don't need to, that you've already arrived and that you're already an expert in everything because you're a nurse or a physician or a respiratory therapist or whatever. I mean, that's that's the hubris is that we often think, I don't need to learn anymore. I've already been to school. I'm, I'm all done. No, this is lifelong learning. If you're going to actually live in the world practicing humility, practicing cultural humility, you need to realize that we're always learning and that there are people that have expertise in areas that we don't. And so are you open to hearing about the experiences of and learning about the experiences of people that are different from you? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like if you think of white privilege, like we don't have to necessarily learn these things. We can just go around not learning about different groups of Americans and be offending people and not caring. But the people other groups of people they have to learn about white people like it's not it's ingrained in everything right so i really i really appreciate that like we should as white people we should be learning about all americans or all people all groups of people so i really appreciate that and period i mean i know for me doing that kind of work has been in the form of reading reading books i'm curious how you went about that or maybe you have some suggestions on how or where they could find information to fill those gaps yeah there are multiple ways to fill those gaps i mean one of the nice the nicest ways to do it is to engage with people that are different from you in in some regard there are so many ways that we stay separate from each other i mean think about religion If you're Christian, when's the last time you've been to a synagogue or a mosque and observed the way that other people practice religion and notice the similarities as well as contrasting? So that's one way to get to know know, groups of people that are different from your own. How often do you have friendships with people that are very, very different from you? And it, you know, it doesn't count that you say, well, I have a student that's black, or I have a student who is trans or a patient or something. That is a different kind of scripted relationship. That's not a equal back and forth of information. So, you know, this notion of being open to having friendships with people that come from groups that are different from you. So, that's the you know, sort of the ideal way is to have meaningful relationships and be open to experiences with people that are different from your own. You can't always do that, but it may be that you don't know anybody that's trans and you're not, it's inappropriate for you to go up to to someone on the street and be like, can you teach me about what it's like like that? No, No, people don't owe you to be taught about the experience that comes from the give and take of a relationship. So, but there are books. I personally am a book person and am drawn to works by people that are that have experiences that are different from my own. For example, we've used the uh, we've talked about trans folks. There's a woman named Janet Mock who has written her autobiography. She's a trans woman and she's also mixed race. And she's so deeply generous with her experiences that it almost feels like 
she's doing this sort of education that she was not, she shouldn't have to be obligated to do, but I benefited so much from what she said. I mean, in many instances, my, my world was kind of shattered. Like I had no idea and I had no idea what I didn't know. There's also listening to the music of the movies that are by folks that are from groups of people that are different from yours. There's also when you are in a position of power, which may be that you're at the meet, you're at a meeting where we're going to talk about policy and procedure or research, research allocation, what needs to be taught, what needs to be researched, who's not at the table. You have the privilege of being at the table. So whose voice is not at the table? And let me just give you another example. Many years ago, a friend of mine, a colleague and friend of mine, we had read a book called Half the Sky. It, it was about the global oppression of women. And I honestly, when I started reading the book, I'm like, this seems like an icky topic. And what does it have to do with me? And then as I began to read the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such an important topic. And so some of it was about sex trafficking. And we wondered what that was like in our own community. And my colleague was so wise that she began to engage with the director of the Sex Workers Outreach Project to see what are the lived experiences of women who are sex trafficked. And again, our world was blown by inviting this person to the table to share their wisdom and their expertise around the lived experiences of. And we never would have had that degree of learning from somebody that hadn't lived the life that wasn't a survivor of. And so that was calling somebody to the table that needed to be at the table. And, you know, another piece of that is you don't just call them to the table and say, it's an honor for you to come and teach us about this. You also compensate that person for their expertise, right? That's part of the the model of cultural humility is that we don't take advantage of groups of people, but rather you are an expert in this area. We need your knowledge and we want to compensate you for your time and your expertise. So, Piri, of course, I had to go on Audible and I'm assuming it's the, the book by Janet Mock is called Redefining Realness. Is that the one you're referring to? Yes. Okay. We'll be sure to add that in our show notes and it is now on my wish list. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I joke that I am upset with Janet Mock because I took the, her book on a, a trip with me and I'm like, this is the book I'm going to read on the trip. I read the whole thing on the airplane there. <laughs> so then I'm on my trip without a book to read and I'm like, that Janet how dare she be so engaging and interesting that I read the whole thing on the airplane? <laughs> well, wonderful. I look forward to reading it then. Or shall I say listening to it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Piri, during our phone call, you had mentioned that, quote, disparities is a euphemism for structural violence. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think it's important for us to talk about the way that we use euphemisms in general. I would say that for a long time, the terms diversity, equity, and inclusion have been a euphemism. We don't really want to use the word racist or anti-racist because it causes an uncomfortable feeling. When we talk about disparities, like that word seems very, very abstract until you get down into the nuts and bolts of what's happening. And I think in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and this national inflection point that we had. I mean, seriously, before that, 
I felt like I needed to use these words because I'm trying to bring people in. I don't want to have people feel offended or disengaged with me because I'm using words that have an emotional component. But what happened in the wake of that is people are like, oh, there's a problem. (laughs) Racism is real. Let's actually talk about it. So I think that we're at a place where we need to be calling things what they are. And so disparities, yeah, this is a metric. It's kind of like a scientific word to talk about the differences and outcomes for groups of people. You know, we can talk about educational disparities. We know that this is historic and has been consistent over time. You know, the, the gaps in education, this is not a new thing. And we know that gaps in education mean that there is less opportunity for gainful employment and that there are health consequences that follow throughout. And then if we look at health disparities, again, this is not new. This information is robust. We've been talking about it over time, but we're talking about the health and the lives of individuals. And if there is harm happening to individuals that is preventable, how can we call that anything else than structural violence? That we're, we're talking about death and harm that happened to individuals. And so I think we need to call it for what it is, that the healthcare system is responsible for disparate health outcomes, the illness and death of certain groups of people more than other groups of people. And these things are preventable. So I'm hoping that by calling it what it is, that we will approach it more directly when we talk about health disparities and you know i ask people so what are we going to do about it oh well, we're we're going to collect more information well yes we need to continue to collect this important information but collecting information has never done anything for a group of people and this has shown that we've been collecting this information for a long time and nothing has changed perhaps by calling it what it is that it's structural violence, we will be more emboldened to do the things that we need to do to change these outcomes. And it's never going to change by just talking about it and finding it interesting. We as healthcare providers need to see ourselves as central to filling those disparate gaps across industries, but we're talking about healthcare right now. So what is the role of nurses? What is the role of physicians and all healthcare providers in creating more trust so people are interested in interacting with the healthcare system? And what is our role in creating the policy that needs to be changed? I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna address something structural like structural violence, we have to address it at the structural level. And there is a book I'm reading right now called The Political Determinants of Health by Daniel Dawes. And he really talks about the the politics, the policies and procedures as being the determinants of the determinants. So if we're going to change structural issues, we need to do it at the structural level. And that is a really insightful book about some of the strategies that need to be taken to address those disparities. Hold, please. I'm currently adding it to my wish list. Yeah. <laughs> it's added. <laughs> All right. So where can folks go to learn more about what you're doing and other people who are doing similar things? I would say probably the best place to to go right now is I have several articles that are fairly recent. If you're interested in more information about microaggressions, 
particularly, I was talking about the humanistic approach. We actually have an article published. It's myself and my colleague, Nicole Jacobs, and we wrote an article that is about the humanistic approach to addressing microaggressions. And it's sort of a a step-by-step way to approach microaggressions. But I would also say it's, it's not just about microaggressions. It's about incivility of any kind. It's about mistreatment and it's about handling difficult conversations. So I would say go to some of the journal articles. And I often do talks for different schools and organizations. And uh, some of those things are online. So you're welcome to do a little Google search. There is a talk that I did for the American Association of Nursing that is basically bystander training that goes through some of these things. So that's also publicly available. And that's where I met you. Oh, that's where you met me. Yes. Okay. So uh, yeah, that is a great place to go as well. Yeah, I really appreciate this conversation, Pierre. I mean, you think even within research, we're really on that edge of people being like, okay, it's enough research to prove that this, that disparities exist. Like, we're done. We're, we've established it's a thing. And what we really need to start doing is addressing it. And the research needs to start going in that direction of not establishing it, but addressing it. And I think you really underscored that. Yeah. And I, I think that that's important. And I've had people say, Piri, can you give us like the grounded research that shows us how to achieve health equity? And one of the things they say is that we don't have grounded strategies to get to a place that we've never been. And so this is where the innovation comes in. We need to be thinking about things in a way that we haven't thought about them before, whether it's the way that we deliver care. I mean, we have a a model of care where patients are supposed to come to us in the healthcare system. What if we were going to them? What if we were creating clinics that address specifically some of the issues that we're seeing like unhoused individuals, you know, there's more and more folks that are becoming housing insecure. And I have a colleague from the Los Angeles area that created this clinic that's uh, called the Illumination Foundation, which really addresses people that are discharged from the hospital that otherwise be discharged onto the street. And so they've created a pathway where people are discharged into this clinic, get the services that they need. The clinic helps them find a place to live. And there's like a sort of this tiered strategy for placing these folks in public housing. And it has been shown to save money. And when I got to visit the clinic, the people in the clinic were so grateful and joyous. I couldn't even tell that they were unhoused individuals. I thought that they were employees of the clinic until my colleague was like, no, no, those are folks that are here waiting for placement. So we need to be thinking about things differently than we have thought about them before. One of the ways to get there is through a diverse healthcare workforce. So being able to bring in representatives of groups, like when we're creating policy and procedure, we need the perspectives of people that have experienced homelessness to help us think about the things that we need to do to be a better assistance and to provide for folks that need a a place to stay. So Piri, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? 
I don't think so. I do want to thank you both for having this amazing podcast, for asking me on, and I'm grateful for folks that have listened to the program today. There's a lot that we can do to promote health equity. We just need to change the way that we're thinking about our personal engagement with that process. There are things that can be done, and this is this is a call to everyone. Let's think about things in new ways so that we can get new things done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Piri. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. <laughs>